Well, you know, with with our department, if you want to stay on patrol your entire life, you can. Okay. It's it's just you know, we've got a lot of officers who you know are in their fifties, you know, and they're happy. They they like patrol. Okay. Uh, it's you know, uh, doing the police thing. It's it's a young man's game. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it, because of the way things go, the way things evolve. But I remember there was a shirt uh, or a quote, you know, beware of the old man in a young man's game, because mm-hmm. if he's made it that long, he knows the way. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, seen these more seasoned officers. It's something that I would often end up, you know, having to use force, go hands on. They're able to, like, Jedi mind trick these people and <laughs> put these cuffs on. <laughs> This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre, skincare for athletes. Whether you're in the gym, on the mats, on the road, or in the pool, we protect your skin so you're more comfortable in your own body. To learn more, go to solpre.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a Marine Corps veteran. He is also currently an officer with the Chula Vista Police Department, where he, I believe, currently serves on patrol as well as a drone pilot. Um, I got in touch with him because I've kind of had, I'll say, a relationship with the Chula Vista PD because they do a race called Baker to Vegas, which is an all-law enforcement ultra-distance relay race, um, which Chris competes in. Um, He's also a father, which is important. I'm sure we'll get to talk about that as well. Um, As I mentioned before, welcome to the show, Chris Lawrence. Thank you. I always wonder, as I, I like, like I said before we got going, I like to give people their due diligence. You know, you put in the time with the Marine Corps. You know, you put in your time as a police officer. You put in your time running. So I always like want to make sure you get all that. But I also think about um, it's not a very usual thing for somebody to like read off all of the things that you do. You know, so I'm always like, how does that feel to be sitting there as I'm I'm jabbering on about? <laughs> All these different things. It's uh, I don't, I don't like thinking about all the stuff that I do and have done because it like <laughs> I try not to get a big head with all this extra stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean that's that's good. So, I mean, um, I so as I told you before, we got going again. Just like I'm kind of coming in a little cold because I I don't have a police background. I don't have any family in law enforcement. I have friends in the military or have, you know, retired from the military. Um, so I'm only tangentially informed. Um, but so Greg mentioned you is, is like, is Greg your boss? How is, how is Greg related to you in the department? Well, Greg, um, he used to be, uh, he got promoted recently, uh, before he was just, you know, a senior officer, kind of a little bit of a mentor, uh, and he's got a fantastic legal background, so a great resource for us on patrol. And then he got promoted, so now he's got stripes. Not really a boss, but uh, now his seniority is recognized, more or less. Okay. He's one of the resources that, you know, he's now in our chain of command. Doesn't exactly tell me what to do, but he gives very strong suggestions. <laughs> it makes some sense. I'm sure it makes more sense as you're there working. Because um, it's not the chain of command is not quite as tightly structured as the military, correct? No, it's so different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So you sent me the other interview you'd done, um, and Greg mentioned you'd done other media. Um, But in the interview you sent me, uh, you mentioned that when you were a kid, you always wanted to, like, um, pretend play as, you know, a, a soldier or as a police officer. So it seems like, you know, you've kind of fulfilled those ideas or maybe dreams since you were a kid. I was, I was wondering, do you have family that are officers or like, does that come from somewhere? You know, uh, I am, I love my family, right? Um, I'm a second generation American. Um, my family, nobody in my family is in law enforcement they're kind mm-hmm. of people that the law is enforced on sometimes okay. and that's how my relationship with you know law enforcement kind of began because uh there would often be police officers over at my family's house and they were always very respectful and courteous you know even even when things were going bad you know they showed respect mm-hmm. and uh it, 
when I was a kid, I grew up in a not too great neighborhood in Milwaukee. And we used to have cops rolling around on bikes and they would pass out the baseball cards and bubble gum. And it was, uh, it was good. I could, I, you know, I could appreciate what they were doing. So. It just seems like, you know, kids are, I'll say impressionable. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but just, you know, some kids say they dream of being an artist or being a teacher. Sometimes they're inspired by their parents or they see something on TV. So, you know, when you mentioned that in the other interview, I was just thinking about, you know, I feel like it has to come from somewhere. There has to be some kind of spark where it's like, you know, that's something that inspires you or that you admire. Yeah. So, um, not trying to dive too deep into my background, but, uh, <laughs> I grew up, <laughs> I grew up in foster care and one of my foster dads was in the military and okay. kind of the structure and that, you know, led me into the military. Uh, and also, you know, I saw September 11th and all that stuff happen when I was in school. Mm-hmm. Um, the law enforcement thing, it was when, uh, so when I was injured, um, I got injured in the war. Yeah, we'll get we'll get into that here later. <laughs> to try to try to bring it all together, um, and afterwards, when I was serving the Marine Corps, there was a level of satisfaction that I had from what I did, and you know, having a direct impact on things that happened. And I, you know, considering the military to the law enforcement side, structures and things are very similar. Um, the the mission, in some ways, are very similar. And I was like, I love the Marine Corps. I love what I did. What's the next best thing? I bounced around for a few years trying to find that. And I was like, you know, I think police officers have the ability to, to kind of shape and guide people in you know, their worst hour. And like, I would like to do that. And at the same time, when I got interested, it was like seriously in law enforcement. It was also during the summer of Ferguson and, and all that stuff going on. And I was like, you know, from my experiences, and from how I grew up, I would like to bring those to the law enforcement field to try and, you know, bring a different side of what people perceive and what their ideas of law enforcement are. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I got listening to you. I had a, I had a thought that I lost it. <laughs> oh, um, so you had this, I mean, you had this gap basically where, you, you know, you're, you're in the military, you were, I assume, um, yeah, medically or honorably discharged. Yeah. Um, and then I think in the interview, it mentioned about a decade between discharge to kind of figuring out, do you want to, you know, get back into a uniform and be able to police officer? So I was wondering, it, it was this a lost decade? Like, what you know, what were you doing in that time? Well, um, so <clears throat> I got medically retired from the Marine Corps in 2010. And right before they retired me, they actually had an option at the time to stay in. Uh, if you were injured in combat, they gave you the opportunity to stay in and go your full 20. And I thought about it. I was like, you know, if I stayed in, I would never be able to do what I did before. They would mm-hmm. probably allow me to deploy. Um, and there was a one of my mentors when I got injured, a great Vietnam veteran, Jack Lyons, who's you know very heavy in the veteran community here in San Diego. Um, he was one of the founders of Veterans Village of San Diego, VVSD. And... He, uh, there was an opening there and it was helping to guide, you know, combat injured veterans and veterans with the invisible wounds, post-traumatic stress, combat stress. And it was similar to kind of what I was doing before I got out in the Marine Corps. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. If I get on, I get on. And that's kind of, I'll take that as a, an indicator to move on to other things. And I did. So I got on and I worked with Veterans Village of San Diego for two years, uh, worked in a nonprofit setting, um, helping homeless veterans, their families, uh, veterans with combat issues. Uh, you know, dealing with the invisible wounds a lot. And then funding got cut. You know, the whole recession hit hard and mm-hmm. you know, funding got cut. Uh, they offered me a position to stay in the, in the organization. But again, I looked at the writing on the wall. Maybe this is an indication to move on to something else uh, because it was still very much at a desk, still very much, you know, four walls and uh spending five years in Marine Corps and growing up how I did, I don't like that too much. Mm-hmm. So uh, I got out, stopped with that, went back to school. Um, I kind of wanted to go the psychology route. And then I realized I don't have the patience to deal with people's problems. <laughs> you know, you, you talk with somebody for years and 
you know, they finally have an epiphany, maybe. Yeah. And 90% of the time they don't, and you're just spinning your wheels and going crazy yourself. So uh, did that, uh, school, um, worked for a medical equipment repair company. Um, I more or less just found more things that I was good at, but I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I considered law enforcement or fire, like those were very good uh, follow-ons after the Marine Corps, but I was, my injuries were so severe Mm-hmm. I'm like, I didn't think I would be physically able to. So I started when I was working in those office settings and all that, I got kind of fat and sloppy. I couldn't stand it. <laughs> I, I started boxing and, mm-hmm. and I got involved with another organization, the Challenge Athletes Foundation, Operation Rebound, and uh, started boxing. I started training. I started training with these professional athletes and semi-pro athletes. And they were like, hey, man, you're pretty good. You can, you can do it. I'm, I'm standing toe-to-toe with these, you know, pro Muay Thai and whatnot. I got a few lumps, bumps, and bruises. Uh, and it gave me the inspiration to try amateur boxing. I did a couple of amateur boxing matches. And I was like, if I could do this, there's no reason why I can't go law enforcement. And, I, right. and that's how it started. Yeah. Well, I, was just, I was like, as you're talking, and you actually even said this, too. So I was like, there it is. It's just you don't with how you talk about um you know the time you served in the military and then kind of deciding okay no i don't want to stay in it's just like you don't strike me as somebody who's going to be satisfied as being a desk jockey anywhere so and it, it, it comes back to, to me it seems like it comes back to to like that inspiration and correct me if i'm wrong but just like you know talking about uh, seeing the police officers and your kid up close and personal, not, not somebody sending you a letter, but somebody, you know, interacting with you face to face. And it seems like that, that seems like a, like a driving force or something that I'll say you enjoy. It's deeper than that. It seems like to me that like you have that personal impact on somebody, not just, you know, shuffling papers around, which is still important, but like it, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's, it would satisfy you, I guess. That's, that's my impression I get. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no matter what, eventually when you work up the ranks, you're going to end up sitting behind a desk eventually. I just yeah. hope I'm anchored to it. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So we get out, maybe, maybe you get to the point you're sitting behind a desk, but you still get to get out and like shake hands, you know, see people every once in a while. And then they'll say, all right, Chris, get back to the office. I'm ready to see you for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I'm sure that's on the horizon. <laughs> Even in the police department, it's on the horizon. There's no way around it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, so this is something I don't know. I mean, I know I speak to a lot of athletes, so I'm very familiar with um, kind of the, the taper off in terms of absolute peak performance for, you know, pro athletes, where it's like you can only get so old before you start getting slower and there's nothing you can do about it. So I met, is there, is there some kind of similar curve with, um, you know, officers out on patrol where it's like, you, you know, you don't want like 85 year old Frank who can't lift a five pound dumbbell, you know, out on patrol with you. So like, is there, you know, do you see kind of that kind of curve where it's like, there's a point where it's like, we got to bring you back and put you behind a desk. Well, you know, with, with our department, if you want to stay on patrol your entire life, you can. Okay. It's, it's just, you know, we've got a lot of officers who, you know, are in their 50s, you know, and they're happy. They, they like patrol. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, uh, doing the police thing, it's, it's a young man's game. Mm-hmm. No doubt about it because of the way things go, the way things evolve. But I remember there was a shirt. Uh, or a quote, you know, beware of the old man in a young man's game, because mm-hmm. if he's made it that long, he knows the way. Mm-hmm. And I've, you know, seen these more seasoned officers. It's something that I would often end up, you know, having to use force, go hands on. They're able to like Jedi mind trick these people and uh, <laughs> put these cuffs on, <laughs> get in the back of my car. They They have these skills. So there's a physical aspect to the job that you can't deny but it's a lot more of a mental and communication. So if 
if people are able to talk well, to interact and connect with people, like being a police officer, it's it's not about, you know, forcing people, wrestling people. It's often about, you know, communicating with people, being mm -hmm. able to connect, being able to talk, being able to see their point of view and get them to see your point of view. And, you know, a good day is a day when I can just talk people into putting on their handcuffs. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have to actually physically force anybody to do anything. That's a great day. And those seasoned experienced officers, they mastered that 10 years ago. You know, they've, they're, they're masters at the game, essentially. They, mm -hmm. They've had enough scuffles and fights and run-ins to know this guy's going to do something. Let me stand back and prepare for it. I know how to do this before. They can read. They can read people like they're reading, you know, the newspaper. They know what's going to happen next. They mm -hmm. can see these things. While, you know, me, I've only been on for three years. I'm still learning. I've, I've learned a few things when people don't do things. I'm like, oh, this is going to go wrong soon. <laughs> but I'm still like, let's see if it goes wrong. I can handle it, you know. I'm, yeah. old, I'm not going to say arrogant, but I, I kind of still enjoy the fun. But, you know, the experienced officers, it's still, they're still good. I mean, I haven't seen any 80-year-old officers, but I know there's some out there. It's just not in our department. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like, and this is, it's, it's the only way I can, in, like, relate to the situation. So I don't mean this in a demeaning way, but, like, so I used to fit shoes with people. So that's a, this is a very small scope of human psychology is people's problems with their feet. And after a time, you start to see the same patterns where it's like, all right, somebody walks in, you can see their laces are, like, tight, so tight that, like, they're right close together the whole way down. You're like, shoe is way too big. They've got a tiny foot. Like, you already know what the problem is before they even say anything. And you already know what the objections are going to be. It's just like, and then in your case, like I said, that's a very small slice. You've got a much broader swath of, you know, human interaction, human psychology to deal with. But it seems like those older guys that, you know, have that experience have to be like, all right, I've been through this a half dozen times. Like, I know this scenario. I know this type of person. Like, I know, you know, yeah, they're in a bad situation, but I know their motivation is actually this. So if I can just talk to them about it, like, we'll be on the same page. Yeah, yeah. It's That's really it. You know, they, <clears throat> they're almost uh, mentalists in a way. <laughs> they, they've been doing it so long. They could see the little cues. They could tell the way they're holding their hands, their inflection. They can read these things and kind of guide them to where they want to go without them knowing it. You know, I'm, I'm still trying to learn that. Uh, I've been reading plenty of books, you know, but uh, it's I'm, a, I'm still a little headstrong. I don't think I could pick up on all the cues yet. Yeah. But I need. Well, and even if even if, say, those guys got together and they wrote a manual, reading the manual, knowing the manual front to back, back to front is totally different from like being able to execute the manual. Yeah. So. They're they're probably able to write the manual. I mean, they have some of these. That's guys. what I'm saying. <laughs> like if if they gave you a manual and you're and you studied it and knew it, not all of it, maybe it would like speed up your progress. But it's not going to make you a master overnight, even if you know yeah. all the knowledge. You know exactly. So, um, but that that makes me. This is one of the things I I wanted to ask you, is that again because I come from basically no background. I just don't have a lot of experience. We get all these kind of portrayals, media portrayals, and I mean, like both news and like pop TV shows of military and police. And my suspicion is that it's not even half the story of like the real life, you know, in either position. And you've been in both. So I'm kind of wondering if you can tell me about are there any like tropes or like misconceptions you see over and over and over that you're just like that's just not that's not how things work or like that's not that's not true at all or like things that that continually pop up like that that we might think are true as lay people but you know is not the case well talking from the military side of things um <clears throat> the military is pretty united there's there's a pretty you know standard way of doing things um The, the way they portray it in media, uh, 
it's kind of accurate. I can't lie. There's they because it's so it's such a large large organization. You know, the United States military. What is it like three million troops? There's right. just so many different facets in there that even these ridiculous things probably are happening somewhere or probably could happen. So I I can't really say that they've got it wrong. Um, law enforcement on a similar thing. Uh, similar point, there's around, I believe, 800,000 law enforcement professionals in the country. You know, we put that in perspective, that is a quarter of 1% of the population or maybe about half 1%. So <clears throat> with that, there's, you know, a couple thousands departments and each department has their own way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So it's a possibility that some of that ridiculous stuff is happening in, in those other departments. I know I see things on the news and I see things on TV and I see reports, I'm like, I can't believe that that happened there because that's how it is there. You know, uh, in my department, I can say we've got a very uh, forward looking command staff. They're kind of, again, they're reading the, the, they're reading the movements of the country and the county before it happens. And they're aligning our department to accommodate them. So our training and things are kind of keeping us in line with things before they happen. Mm-hmm. So we are able to better handle a lot of things that, you know, to us, we look like, oh, my God, I can't believe this, you know, person shot 60 rounds in a shootout going down the street by an elementary school because we would never do that because our training says that just doesn't make good sense. Right. But in another department, if that's the way they're trained, the way they do things, I can't can't talk against it because departments have their own policies for what they're dealing with. And honestly, the way the media has done things, they often look at the mistakes of one officer, mm-hmm. that 800,000, and use that one mistake to paint all 800,000 as that one screwed up officer. Right. And it's a little frustrating, but again, it's we, we tend to stand together when there's something bad that happens to us. And then at the same time, not every officer speaks out when an officer does something bad. But then again, we, we know that it's hard to rush to judgment. We're like, okay, there's something else going on here that we don't know. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Uh, I'm kind of rambling on. I think I lost the uh, No, 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 you're right. It's just like the, the roundabout thing I'm trying to get to, which you kind of did, is that, I mean, it seems like depending on where you are, because I have um, – you know, people I know, friends that are very like pro-military, pro-police, and then other people that are very anti. And I sit in the middle and just kind of watch the chaos um, <laughs> because it's a realization that like no matter what organization it is, um, police, Catholic priests, uh, school teachers, you're going to have a certain amount of people that this is – this is very black and white, but you're going to have good people and you're going to have bad people. Again, it's black and white because I, I, this is another thing where like say you have somebody you de- deem as like a bad officer or an officer who makes a, a bad choice, you know, and then gets demonized in the media. Does that make that person entirely bad? I certainly don't think so. Do they make a bad decision? Probably, but – Sometimes there's also extenuating circumstances that like the media doesn't report. Yeah. So it's like we get that's that's kind of what I'm getting at is like sometimes we get these snippets and tidbits where it's like it's easier. I think it's easier basically to sell the news when you say here's this villain cop who is supposed to be whatever instead of being like, you know, Chris went on patrol today and de-escalated the situation and brought somebody in with without injury harm to anybody and everything's cool. Like that's not a story. Exactly. It's not, it's not sensational. You know, right. nobody wants to know when we do our jobs, right? right. You know, if uh, on average I have, you know, 10 calls for service or 10 incidents a day. And let's say each incident has one or two people. That's 36 interactions I have with people a day. Now, if every officer across the country, you know, has half that much, that's like 8 million people these officers are interacting with. Mm-hmm. Now, if one time out of those 8 million interactions with people, an officer does something foolish that day, it gets all the attention, not counting the 7,999,999 times that officers did something right. 
But I understand, man, you know, we need to be held accountable for our actions. There needs to be a higher standard of training. And there, there are things that I can say I'm actually appreciative that the country has been pushing for. But at the same time, we're tending to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been, you know, the question of police legitimacy. People who are saying we don't need police at all. I'm like, well, yeah, that's a, let's, let's see how that plays out. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's issues. But it's, again, it's the media. It's more sensational to say that this one officer who nobody knows anything about their backstory, they don't talk about how, you know, this officer, you know, may be a white officer, but has a black wife and grew up in an inner city community, uh, volunteers at his local boys and girls clubs, was responding to this call after possibly reviving a baby or possibly, you know, pulling out a gun at a robbery and then pulls up to a call where somebody has a gun and this person points the gun at him, turns out it's a toy gun. The officer shoots, kills this kid. The kid happens to be black. And now the media just says, black officer shoots black kid with toy gun. Or white officer shoots black kid with toy gun. And that's all they cover. You know, there's more to the story. I'm not saying that, you know, those things shouldn't be criticized. But we tend to, you know, again, throw the baby out with the bathwater or just go on witch hunts and break out the pitchforks and torches. Um, that's a really difficult time for law enforcement. We had a big conversation yesterday in training about how there are so many changes on the horizon and it's becoming so difficult to recruit officers. And, you know, we're, we're not getting less calls for service. We are, you know, the burden. The reason why I think people hate law enforcement so much is we are the social barrier. We are, people think that thin blue line is to protect us. It's really the thin blue line is to protect society from order and chaos. And the more we choose to encourage chaos by making less repercussions, less consequences for doing things, you know, that thin blue line gets stretched and there's only a matter of time before the chaos is overflowing. You know, it's... I don't want to go on a tangent and a tirade regarding policies on the horizon, but it's, it's, we're dealing, police officers, again, are societal barrier. We are the field psychologists, you know, the field therapists. We are the first medics. We are the first responders. We arrive before fire does dealing with critical incidents. You know, I've had to hold people's heads back together before the firefighters got to, because something crazy was going on. It's, but then, you know, we are the villains in the way the, the media portrays us. Because, you know, this person who has this crazy mental health issue that the family hasn't been able to deal with and chose not to deal with has been living on the streets for years. And society says that he does not need to be institutionalized because it's okay for him to sleep on the street, eat sticks and, you know, not bathe for months. Then he somehow gets a hold of a gun or a knife and rushes at us and then he gets hurt. And it's our fault for versus all the other things that failed to get him to us. Oh, you're right. I you know, it, it makes me think about like you said, you're the, I mean you're the field psychologist, and that's it seems like anytime you've got a job where you're dealing with people, it, it's it's almost first a job of psychology and then whatever your jo- your job title is you know because you're you are dealing with people it's an interaction it's a social thing and i there's a lot of components here to try to break apart the motivations of people the motivations of the media um you know and that can go back to you know there's so many rabbit holes to go down which i like to do but with the media it can be yeah, they need to sell papers or sell, you know, airspace, whatever it is, you know, the attention is what they need to, to garner so they can sell ad ad space. But then also along with that, that media narrative shaping culture and, and our perception of culture. And I kind of think about sometimes and I, as an adult, I don't mean this demeaning to adults, but it, I think sometimes we forget that we were children and some of those tendencies we had as children, we haven't necessarily gotten rid of just because we've gotten older, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's all of us, not, 
you know, there there are some people, I would assume you, um, for sure, are more responsible than others. But I think there are also things that maybe we haven't had to deal with or or come up where it's like this this pattern of behavior or whatever where it's never been changed for whatever reason. We haven't had to. We haven't wanted to. Um, it's benefited us to some point. Um, and I, in, in that case, I think about like there's a statistic, and I don't even think it's that accurate, but it's often quoted that like um, sociopaths make good CEOs because they don't care about people. They're just about the bottom line. Well, that's a very obvious negative characteristic that benefits that individual. That's an extreme example, but, you know, on a microcosm, you know, it say just bullies, you know, people that are mean in the right environment, they get to be in charge that benefits them, but it doesn't necessarily benefit society as a whole. So it's like, there's so many layers of both as culture and individuals, how we view culture and then how you guys as police officers play a role into that, that it's like, you know, how do you even begin to untangle it all and try to figure out the human element instead of making that black and white judgment where you're like all police officers are bad or all police officers are good. It's like we're all people and there's shades of gray and we have to devote mental energy to things to sift through all the madness. Yeah. You know, the reality is, is good people do can do bad things and can make bad decisions. Bad people can do good things and make good decisions. And, you know, it's, I can't, because when, when I'm out and I have to arrest somebody who did something terrible, they may have been a fantastic Sunday school teacher and, you know, may love their kids and take care of all, everybody all the time, but they did this one thing and that's going to be what they get judged upon. And I consider that while I'm doing it, you know, I'm, I don't want to, you know, paint their entire existence with this bad brush or this bad decision. Mm-hmm. that's how they're going to be judged for a long time and what they're going to have to deal with. And that's how law enforcement is too. So it's the reality. It's just how we as people are, you know, we have a, a, a we tend to remember negative things a lot easier and a lot better than remember positive things. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. The other thing I was thinking about a minute ago, um, you're talking about basically the exception to the rule and then being, the, you know, the entirety of uh, law enforcement being painted with that exception. It's like um, my business mentor talks about this sometimes in a different context since we're obviously talking business, but well, we talk about culture too. I, I remember a conversation with him about mass shootings, which do happen more in this country than some other countries. But the thing he talks about is that, you know, there's, however many million people in America. I can't remember what what we're at now, 300 million or something. There's a lot of people in the country. And the way news is set up now is it's, it's not like if you're watching the news, it's not just what's happening in San Diego or Chula Vista. It's what's happening in the nation, all 300, 300 million of us. And it's almost a statistical certainty that, something bad happened that day. So, but then it almost becomes an overwhelming thing because we get this bad thing happened on the East coast today. And then that bad thing happened on the West coast and then the Midwest. And then the South just, it's yeah. this like perpetual deluge of just horrible things being thrown at you that don't necessarily have a direct influence on your life at all because they're not part of your community. Mm-hmm. But, but, then they become part of your psyche and that part becomes part of your community. Mm-hmm. And it's this, this kind of weird cycle where if we just had, if we almost set like, I'm not a big fan of isolationism um, thinking, thinking about like global markets, but if we almost just said, okay, news can only report on news within, I don't know, 20 miles of city limits or whatever whatever arbitrary thing we want to decide on. I think you'd have first news would have to work a lot harder to find news, but I think you'd have to be, you'd be forced to focus on like almost puff pieces, like Mm -hmm. a bunch of puppies got adopted, adopted today. And that was awesome. And like, 
Like, I don't know if you, there's the, the national news story about, um, so I'm in Kansas City, so the Chiefs obviously just won the Super Bowl, and one of our players paid for um, all of the dogs in a local shelter to be adopted. And that became a big national news piece. I feel like local places, local news would be forced to figure out how to bring more positive stuff mm-hmm. if we weren't allowed to, to, to think about the entire U.S. And sometimes it's even like, we pulled international stuff in too. Yeah. So it's like, what what are we doing? What are we doing to ourselves? Basically, that's that's, that's almost polluting our minds. Absolutely right. And, and in your case, like you said, you have you know eight hundred thousand some odd law enforcement officers. Somebody probably screwed up today. Then that becomes national news. Then you get to deal with the out, you know, the fallout from as you mentioned a, a department that doesn't necessarily operate the way you guys do in Chula Vista at all. Yes. And, you know, I, um, I have this personal theory and you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. Maybe one day when I go for a master's in psychology or a PhD in psychology, sociology, probably, um, I believe that the media, uh, social media, uh, mass media is giving us a mass social trauma. You know, if you look at society, it's, it's more or less that we have been traumatized. We, there was a time, if you think about the 50s and 60s, things were terrible back then, but mm-hmm. people still were able to live happy lives. They were able to live happy lives because they didn't know about all the terrible things. Uh, my dad, well, the man who raised me, black man, grew up in Milwaukee. Milwaukee was, is still one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And there were police officers murdered somebody in his neighborhood. And that's what he remembers. But that was you know, not so much as part of life, but it didn't cause this big, you know, mass protest, all these things, because it was local to that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I guarantee that things going on 50, 60 years ago were a lot worse than things going on today. But the fact of the matter is, is that today, if something happens in Milwaukee, people will hear about it over here in San Diego, and there will be protests in San Diego for something that happened in Milwaukee. You know, and instead of allowing your community and society to have that proper mourning, grieving, and moving forward, we hear about another terrible thing that happened the next day, if not the same day. So it, we as a society never get the ability to properly process the traumas that we have going on because we keep getting bombarded by one more traumatic event on top of another. And then it, it, you know, I'm sure that contributes to the depression, it contributes to the anxiety, the overall fear, you know, Parents today, the world is no more dangerous today than it was when I was a kid, 30 years ago. I walked to the store, across busy, crazy streets. I used to go in and buy cigarettes from my mom with a note. <laughs> Didn't even have money. Give my mom cigarettes. <laughs> Five years old. And I go back with them. It was fine. You can't do that today. Because society paints the world as a more dangerous place, even though it's not. The reason why we paint it as a more dangerous place is because we are showing more dangerous stories. We're showing that this terrible thing happened to this child nowhere near here. So not saying it should not be put on notice, but we are not allowing ourselves to heal. Right. I I think there's two, two sides to this I was thinking about. And my father's similar. Dad, if you're listening to this, I'm sorry, I'm going to throw you under the bus. Um, But I, I often tell him turn off the news stop watching the news because it's it's poisoning your mind and he he has this so he grew up as an only child on a farm so you know living on a farm you're relatively isolated but he had you know um he knew his distant family like he knows his cousins he knows his second cousins he knows all this extended family because that's just how the community was structured and from what i can tell at least the way he tells it you know people left their doors unlocked you know they didn't worry about this and that and then now he he almost gives me these stories of perception where like he sees all this stuff on facebook on the news where he feels like uh you know i'm growing up in such a terrible time because all these things are happening and i just say dad just look like i'm a mathematician so one of my majors in college was math so i rely on the numbers i say look at the statistics like Crime rates, generally speaking, are going down over time. 
you know, we're seeing more of it because now we're more connected than ever. Mm-hmm. But the actual occurrences are declining. So it is, I think, by by most measures, it's safer now than when he grew up. <clears throat> he just grew up blissfully aware. Yeah. Or blissfully unaware. There, Sorry. So it's like, I think about almost devil's advocate against my own suggestion of, of this isolationism idea of, um, you know, only saying we can only live within our own communities. Cause we do in some ways live in our own bubbles and uh, please tell me if I'm speaking out of turn, cause I don't mean to do that, but it seems like there's especially the narrative now where like black communities will say, you know, the police don't treat us the same way they treat white communities whatever that means, you know, whether it's police brutality or, um, you know, murdering uh, black kids or whatever it is. And it seems like, again, this is all my perception since I clearly did not grow up as a black child in a black community. That's why I'm saying, please correct me if I'm wrong or I have this wrong. Um, It seems like they're living in a totally different um, environment or culture than what I would have grown up in. So if we continue to stay isolated, then it's like, I don't get any idea about what what's happening to them versus what's happening in my community. Yeah. And that, you know, that segregation leaves us to believe that reality is two very different things. When in fact, both of them are happening. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, so I go back to Milwaukee probably four or five times a year, and it's another world back there. I live out here in San Diego. Mm-hmm. It's easy to forget I'm black out here. It's yeah. easy. I mean, you know, but black people are the minority minority in San Diego. You, it's it's different. It's just such a different world. I go back to Milwaukee. I can't forget that. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, there's a whole different culture, a whole different climate. I know when I go into certain stores, people behave differently. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. That hasn't changed, but to, to, to disconnect would be to deny that part of reality because mm-hmm. we have, our country is so large. It is so diverse, it is so eclectic, and it is so divided. Um, we, to have that connection, I guess what the media is doing by showing all these terrible things that law enforcement does is trying to bring awareness to the to the differences and the services and injustices but the problem is is that when they do that they make it seem like everybody is like that right you know, i m- m- my police department has a very diverse department it's crazy diverse like you know there's like like you know white people are the minority in the department almost mm-hmm. for a city that's you know vast majority like white and hispanic but Nobody notices that. I, I interact with black people in the community. Like, oh, I didn't know there were black people in the department. I'm like, that's because you haven't had much interaction with the police department. I mean, that's that's a good thing, I guess. Yeah. But, you know, it's we still need to be connected. Um, we just have to, I guess, if we become aware of the reality that the media is kind of traumatizing us and, and these over-reporting, it's it's hard. Uh, I dropped my daughter off at school, and when she was like three or four, uh, some little kid told her that her daddy shoots people, her daddy kills people, and she came home and she was like, "Does that happen, daddy?" I'm like, "Not while I'm a police officer. <laughs> no, I haven't had to." And she was talking about how the other kids were making fun of her and saying. You know, bad things about her daddy because he's a police officer. And they're mm-hmm. three, four years old. How do they know this? They're picking right. this up from the media. They're picking this up from their parents. I, I worked at a, um, a toy thing in uniform, passing out toys to kids in the you know, lower income part of the community. And another little four-year-old came up and said, don't shoot me. I'm like, where is this coming from? We're passing out toys. And he's... <laughs> Hold hold on, baby. If I go back and watch TV, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, you're right. <laughs> so it's it's just you know I understand that that's the world that they're pre- being presented with. Mm-hmm. Oh, 
And that's something they have to consider and accept. <laughs> but it's doing a disservice to them because, you know, when I was a kid, even in my not so great neighborhood, I knew that police were people we could rely on to help us. Now kids today are questioning us. I get called to a crime and the victim is as scared of me as she is of the person who did what happened to her. You know, <laughs> why? You know, um, it's, it's a sad state. Uh, but again, it's understandable when you look at the bigger picture and as you were saying, how things going on in one part of the country, even though they may not be reflected here, they're still going on in the country. So we can't deny that that's happening, but we have to acknowledge that it's not happening here. So it's a complicated, complicated, complicated situation. I don't even know how to deal with it. It's well, I, yeah. Well, I mean, that's that's the trouble, right? Is that, like I said, I always I always refer to it as layers, but just there are so many pieces, there's so many moving pieces. And it's like, how do you, how do you begin to deal with it? And let alone like solve it, you know, where do you even start? You know, is it a matter of like, we need to rebrand police officers and like take away the uniform and give you like a t-shirt with a happy face or like, <laughs> that's absurd, you know, but I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. is it, is it an image problem? Is it, and it's like, that's clearly not going to be the whole thing because you could still take, think about, oh, I wish I had a good example, but think about um, if, in your imagination, say say we rebranded police officers and we got rid of the uniforms and gave everybody a bright yellow shirt and a happy face on it. Well, you could imagine like a dystopian movie where like, uh, like militaristic enforcers are wearing these happy faces like you have to be happy or like we're going to kill you so it's like it doesn't that like the t-shirt doesn't solve anything that's not that's not the issue so it's like okay we think about rebranding that doesn't work um community relations which which you work on but then you have you know at times the media working against you so then you get this perception where you have that little kid that's like please don't shoot me and then you're like like how do i overcome that because i only have and well I, i'm speaking for you so I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but just, you, you know, in that moment, you've got five seconds, 10 seconds to interact with this kid and be like, no, like, it's okay. Or have be able to have a short conversation. Like you have just a small window of time to try to give this positive impact to be like, like you have the totally wrong idea about who I am and what I do. Oh, and then that's, that's something that being a police officer today, especially a young police officer, a junior police officer, um, we have to be aware of our actions beyond any time in, in, in policing history, in the United States history. Um, because in our department, and I'm very happy to say that it's okay to walk away for us. We don't have to do the terrible things. If we're like, this isn't gonna end well for anybody, it's okay, hey, save face, walk away. We don't have to get them today. Um, so we, we've avoided some terrible incidents because you know what? We're not going to put ourselves in that situation. And for the young officers, we think two, three steps ahead, years ahead. You know, uh, when I first came on, I, uh, I arrested a guy and I called his mom so she could come and pick up his car. I saw him actually one of the, the day of that interview that I sent you. I saw him that day and he was like, hey, thank you, Officer Lawrence. You know, and it was like, I arrested you for a whole lot of dope. And you're thanking me because I didn't take your car. And it's yeah. the things we do try and it's, we can't please everybody. Right. You know, and I just accept that, you know, there's going to be people who hate us for no reason. I mean, even the crooks, they know that there's, there's people who come to our city and they're like, I'd rather come to your city and do stupid stuff because you're nicer than cops in the other city. It's, it's terrible. It's like, like, Hmm, I don't know if I want to. Or the transients come here and they're like, hey, we like staying in your city because you don't beat us up like the other cities. It's like, what? What? I'm not saying that the other cities beat them up, but it's it's the way that for our department and our way of policing, not to say kindler and gentler, but we are more aware of our secondary and tertiary actions. We know, you know, 
uh, when, when we have to arrest mom for beating up dad, the kids aren't gonna like us anymore. So in order to save face for mom and for us, we ask mom to come outside. We tell dad what's gonna happen, close the door, keep the kids inside, tell mom to say goodbye, and she comes with us. Doesn't traumatize the children. There, there are kinder ways of doing things. And you know we have that luxury in our town I know some cities, you can't do that because things are just going to go from bad to worse. So uh, I have to acknowledge that what I'm dealing with in my town and my beat is unique to that town, that beat. And I can't suggest that everybody else does that. Just like what the police officers in Milwaukee are dealing with is unique to Milwaukee. And I can't imagine what they're dealing with. You know, it's, it's a reality that we have to acknowledge. We can't paint everybody with that broad brush. There's just too much going on. There's too many facets. You know, just like how the way the government goes is we try and say, hey, we're going to do this for everybody. We're like, oh, well, that kind of screws these people over here who mm-hmm. that doesn't benefit. You know, so, yeah, it's a hard, hard situation. Just have to accept that we're not going to make everybody happy, but we could at least consider our secondary and tertiary actions when we do things. Yeah, it makes me think about I've forgotten the author. I should I should know who the author is. It's a book called Tribes. Um, and uh, no, it's, there's a, I'm sorry. I was trying to think. There's a general that made a book of this. Okay. Well, um, so we lost Chris for a second. He was in the middle of a thought. Weird technical difficulties, and our call got cut off. But we're back. Um, so we don't run too far in time because Chris needs to get sleep. As I think you mentioned in the beginning, you've got basically overnight shifts your work so i'm sure your sleep schedule is all kinds of messed up so um so we can end up uh end our conversation here let's let's jump to uh banker to vegas which is kind of how i got in touch with you guys greg um who is not your boss kind of <laughs> is the one that originally got in touch with me um and i sent you guys some of our products last year and then he got in touch with me this year and said, Hey, I see you're doing the podcast and I have a guy I'd like you to talk to. Um, so tell me about Baker to Vegas. Um, and you know, what's the experience like? I know it's all, all law enforcement and it's, I do a relay race, but it's only, it's not even half the distance, um, of Baker to Vegas. So how long does the race take? Um, you know, what kind of prep is, is the department doing? Do you, do you have like tryouts where you got like you got to make a certain time for guys from the department to be able to go, or or how competitive is it? Well, you know, Baker Vegas, uh, from Baker, California to Las Vegas, or you know, just about a little bit shorter than that. Um, I want to say there are eighteen legs, which eighteen relays. I think the longest one is about twelve and a half miles, and it's going through up and down, changing elevations, all sorts of hills and whatnot. Uh, mostly in the middle of the desert, um, at the through the blazing hot sun all the way into the frigid nights. Um, our department, it's a pretty small department. I mean, we we've got around 245 officers right now. Uh, the departments that tend to kill it are the big departments like LAPD, LA Sheriff. Last year, it was won by the Belize National Police, and they uh, they actually like made it that entire distance in like six and a half hours just so freaking nuts mm-hmm. um our department because it's so small uh, it's not ran entirely by officers uh there we have um forensic technician accountants anybody who works for our department can participate uh, on good years this would be my second year doing it last year you had tryouts you had to run you had to make sure that you did it in a certain time um this year we're we got a lot less participation than we did in the past. Um, and it's, we, 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 we're going to have a team. Uh, last year, we made it great. We, I think we did one of our best runs uh, we've ever had at our department. We were uh, number three for our division. And we actually made it to the podium. And we got like these cool mugs. Uh, and our department got to take home a trophy. I think it may have been the first time. This year... And you know, I hope I hope you can. Greg was so happy with uh, with what he did. He last year he wrote the numbers on the side of his car, 
and he has to take them off. So even if we're so like, we've got to beat that. You know, we've got to be even better than that. Because every year you run, they rank you based off of what you ran last year. So that determines where you start in the race. And then you lose or gain your ranking depending on how you finish the year. So next year, hopefully we're as good or better than we are this year. I think Greg was telling me that there's basically divisions where it's like if you have say even a smaller department than yours, you're not going to like rank them the same kind of division you would like LAPD where it's like, they've got tons and tons more officers to choose from, you know? Yeah. There's, uh, there's a lot of different divisions. I can't even keep, I, I'm not sure on how many, but I think there are about six, um, maybe even more than that. Um, because they have ones where it's just men only. And they have ones where they're just women only. And they have ones where they're just sworn. And then there are ones where it's a blended like ours. Um, it's, and also depending on the size of the department, because LAPD and LASO, uh, the sheriff's office, usually do phenomenal because their departments are so big, they have multiple running teams. You know, they've got like the investigative side of the department has a team and then the patrol side has a team and then you know the jailers have a team the district attorney investigators have a team it's just la there's like 10 teams out of la alone <laughs> so you know they're of course they're going to run stuff they're going to rank and do well well you know our small department we are scraping together and trying to beg borrow and steal people to make sure that and not steal of course <laughs> trying to make sure that we have a, a sufficient team so and we've got uh, Chula Vista being really close to the Navy base and Marine Corps base out here, we have a lot of veteran participation. A lot of our officers are former military, so they're usually up to it and run pretty great. Um, mm -hmm. Greg is one of the uh, coordinators for our team, uh, along with uh, David Morano, and it's you know they put in so much effort behind the scenes on off days. Our training season more or less started in November, and. Um, some teams operate year-round. You know, you got to put in so many runs and then you got to try out. You know, uh, Greg kind of has it to where he wants me to use on um, one of the running apps. And um, he tries to, excuse me, tries to track how many runs we do to make sure we get this many miles and this much time. And, um, I'm one of the slower guys. In fact, I, I was surprised I wasn't the slowest person on the team last year. <laughs> I, uh, you know, uh, uh, I was running an elevation and I was averaging, I think, I think somewhere around 10, 10, 40 for five miles, which is pretty, pretty terrible. <laughs> I've done better. Um, but there was somebody who ran it worse than I did, which was surprising. So it's, I think from us and not qualifying was like three seconds. I'm not making the podium would have been like three seconds. So if I was three seconds slower, we wouldn't even have made the podium. So it's very difficult, very competitive, and it's a point of pride for our department because we have a rivalry with another department nearby. And, you know, Chiefs always like, beat them, make sure you beat them. Well, for, for some perspective, it's three seconds over like 120 miles, so the margin of error is basically non-existent. <laughs> yeah, if I, if I stopped the time of shoot, we could have been you know, dropped to fifth place. Yeah. Yeah. So it does. So it, this is on, on the nose, but and, and I again, I'm just it's just curiosity. Um, we didn't really get into this your combat injury, but um, you have one of your legs is prosthetic on the uh, lower half, correct? Yeah. So um, back in 2007, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was uh, on a foot patrol going over a bridge. Insurgents blew the bridge off, blew, blew the bridge up literally when I was walking across it. So the bomb went off underneath my feet. Uh, so uh, my right leg uh, led to being amputated below the knee. My left leg, uh, I lost all of my toes and I've got nerve drop, a nerve damage causing foot drop. I went running today and, you know, ended up eating crap, which is a regular thing. It's just I, I realized, you know, it's going to happen. I'm kind of running at a disadvantage. And, just you know, learn a tuck and roll to keep on going without missing the beat. But yeah, it's uh, I run with um, uh, a cool little blade 
Um, it's a lot quicker. When I was in the academy, I wasn't able to use any of the cool running prosthetics. I had to run just as I would on patrol, uh, which was terrible. Doing five miles wearing essentially like a brick. <laughs> it's pretty mm -hmm. hard. Uh, but I know guys, you know, 20, 30 years ago, were, were the leg that I used to walk in every day was the running leg 20 years ago. So I'm still, still not that bad. Yeah. Well, so it, this is something that I, when I first was just putting together kind of my questions and thoughts to ask you, one of the things I want to know about you is you seem to have a pretty positive attitude about just life in general. And I want to know if, is that an active choice you make or is that just a default mode of being? Well, I, uh, an acquaintance of mine um, last year made a comment that, that I was built to crap. I never thought about that. You know, I, I grew up in foster care, uh, you know, got blown up in Iraq, you know, had a heck of a time trying to get on with the law enforcement department. So it's, for me, it's not worth the energy to waste feeling sorry. Uh, if somebody can do it, then I can do it just like them. And that's how I've always been. Um, and I'm going to try to. The positivity, um, the positive attitude, I can say it's kind of been post-injury uh, because I lost a lot of good friends over there in Iraq. Um, and I, 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 I understand and appreciate that they're not ever going to be able to live the life that they thought that we talked about. So. I will do my best in the life that I have left to live it, to honor them, and to honor my family, you know, family members who you know died early. So that's that's kind of why I try to stay positive. My career choice, whew, it works for me. <laughs> trying, to, trying to stay positive, trying to you know see the brighter side, uh, be able to smile. Um, but you know, every day is another opportunity to have a good day, and I choose to have a good day every day. No matter what, every day is good enough. You kind of touched on this, and I think about this sometimes where it's like, um, whatever it is I'm doing, even if I'm not able to be the best, like I had aspirations of being a professional athlete, um, even though I knew that the odds of doing that are pretty low, that I, you know, I wanted to pursue it because I wanted to be the best I could be. Thinking about like living up to your potential, you kind of touched on that where it's like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And like, you know, thinking about the friends you lost and saying, well, I'm still here, so I'm going to make the best of what I've got. Like, how do we, how do we take that idea, instill that in people where it's like, okay, yeah, you didn't, you weren't born, you know, into a millionaire family and have all the perfect things, but you are here and you have the opportunity with some gifts that you've give, been given, you know, whether you believe in God or not, you have these things. How do we instill that idea that it's like, you know, put what you have to use, you know, become the best thing that you can be, whatever that is, whether it's a professional athlete or a police officer or a teacher, like, you know, how do we communicate that? Or in your case, like, how do you communicate that to your daughter, you know? Well, for my daughter, um, it's been difficult. <laughs> she, she's very fine. Go back in the room for me, please. <laughs> Della Marie, what's wrong? I'm, I'm sorry. She's she's uh, she's been locked up in the, the room for a while. She's not too happy. Uh, we'll wrap up here soon. Well. It's a lot of it is grit, you know. I, 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 I'm I'm reading a book and I realize, and the book is talking about how you know uh, your children will very rarely grow up to be like you because the qualities that you had to make you into who you are, you are making sure they don't have. You know, I grew up in a pretty crappy situation. I'm giving my daughter pretty much everything that I didn't have and everything that I hoped for. 
Now, with doing that, you know, she uh, has a lot smoother life. And her life being smoother has kind of taken away the fact that she needs to have that determination. She needs to have that grip. You know, when I was growing up, I didn't have many people encourage me or support me. You know, uh, I kind of made the choice. I looked at people and I was, I saw either I could be like them or I would choose not to be like them. And I realized early on that most of life is a choice. Um, you can choose to be happy. You can choose to be sad. You can choose to be successful. You can choose to be a failure. And you make that determination. I may not be the fastest runner, but I'm a runner. <laughs> most people out there are faster than me, but they won't run. So I'm faster than them no matter what. Yep. So my daughter, I try to encourage her that it doesn't matter if you're the best. The fact is that you're doing it. And even if you don't do it well, the more you do it, the better you will get. Um, the mindset, it's, I don't know. I, I really can't say it. It's, it's hard. Um, and I think it's getting more difficult in today's society with the way things are going. Um, it's easier to be a victim than to be a victor. It's, it's almost like you are looked down upon for your success. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have a nice house, nice cars, and I've got some savings. If I didn't have my injuries, people would probably look at me like a terrible person just because I have the things that other people don't have. Mm -hmm. But because I have my injuries, I'm like, oh, well, it must be difficult for them to get them. But it's difficult for people to get them regardless. Right. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being successful. So it's, it's the modern state of our culture and our society. I'm sure we could continue on for quite a while. Um, but again, trying to be mindful of your time and knowing you probably need to get to sleep and take care of hers here soon. Um, I do like to ask everybody the same question. And so I changed it from last year to this year. This year, I'm asking everybody a new question. And um, I want to know, in your opinion, what is the purpose of sport? The purpose of sport. That's a, that's a complicated question. I did not admit this, but I, I should have watched your podcast in the past. <laughs> For me, it pushes me to be better, to do better. It's an easy metric for me to measure my growth. Um, for society, the grit that a lot of people aren't exposed to by their upbringing, whatnot, they face in sports. You know, you had that, that team that always gave you a hard time. You had to work hard. You had to build up. You had to fight figuratively. You had to fight them on the court and the field to get better. You knew that anxiety, you knew that struggle, you knew that force, you had to push yourself through. So sport, I think, is another way for people to grow. That's, that's it's, it's almost like the fertilizer. I can, as a police officer, I appreciate my partners that were athletes because I know, they know what it's like to have that pain and still push through it. They know what it's like to have that difficult moment. I know, hey, I'm probably going to lose, but I'm still going to keep fighting. And by just keeping fighting, you're not going to lose. And that's what I'd rather be in a fight with. It's a sport. The purpose of sport is to continue growth. Solid answer. Chris, thanks for spending time with me. Um, if people want to kind of see what you're up to, where can they find you? Uh, I'm on Instagram, uh, kind of, <laughs> not too terribly active on there. I just opened it up, but uh, that's probably the best place to find me on Instagram. C. Lawrence or RoboLaw223. Good deal. Thanks for spending time with me and for dealing with the technical difficulties, coming back for a little bit more time. <laughs> no problem. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. I'll take care.